Good morning. <clears throat> morning. Hi, my, my name is Day Kim. I'm the pastoral resident here at Cornerstone. If you don't know what that means, it means that I need a lot of patience and prayer and grace from the congregation. Um, specifically, you could pray for a new lunch partner as Ryan had a baby and my lunch partner, um, my lunches are free from now on. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. And if you do not have your Bibles with you, it will be up on the screen um, for you. Revelation chapter 3, we'll be reading verse 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my faith. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial, trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of, of my father and the name of my, the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we know that on our own, our, these words would bear no fruit. But Father, would you, we pray that your Spirit may open our hearts, that you, may, you are the only one who can make them into good soil, so that they may take root and produce fruit to bless others and to glorify your name. Lord Jesus, we need you to grab our minds and our hearts to focus on you. Show us that you're more beautiful. Show us that you're more uh, precious. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. Would you reign? And with everything that we do, whether preach or listen, may we do it for your glory alone. Father, would you be glorified during this time? Point us to Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was, uh, there was one, an old pastor who was on his deathbed and he was dying. And as his last request, he sent word to his church to uh, bring a lawyer, his lawyer and his banker. And the church, uh, who are two members of his church, and as they came into the house, the pastor um, ushered him into the room. He said, come on in, come on in. And as they came in, the pastor sat uh, each of them on each side of the bed. And as they were sitting there, the pastor just lay there, and he took hand of each of, their, of uh, the lawyer and the banker. He took one of each of their hands, and he gave a deep sigh of relief. And he looked up to, to the ceiling and just closed his eyes, and he, looked, he gave a little smile. And as the banker and the lawyer they were sitting there, they were, they were very touched, and they were very flattered because they were thinking, um, we're so honored that we're here next to this, our pastor in his last moments of his life, 
and uh, we're so honored to be here for him. But they were also a little bit confused because the pastor had never really given any indication that he uh, particularly liked either of them. Finally, the banker, he was so curious that he just asked the pastor, Pastor, why did you ask us to come here? Is it because I was the most helpful banker you ever had and I helped you set up your 401k? And he was the most honest lawyer you've ever met? And the dying pastor opened his eyes and he looked at each of them and he smiled and he said, I've always wanted to die like Jesus between two thieves. <laughs> All to say that life can be sobering. Life can be very harsh and sobering. And if you haven't been, been with us for a while, um, or if, you're, if this is your first time visiting us, as a church, we've been going through the book of Revelations. And we've been going through a series on the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And this letter is very sobering. It's so sobering. Um, because Jesus doesn't beat around the bush what he's trying to say. And he's not afraid to call out the sins. And he's not afraid to call out sinners for who they are. We've seen extreme language come out of Jesus. We've seen harsh punishments uttered by Christ to sinners who are unwilling to repent. And for most people, that's not surprising. Because the book of Revelation is often perceived to be God's communication, God's letter to humanity of his wrath and brimstone and fire and judgment and hell. And though there is some truth to that, our series of, our Revelation series is not named 10 Things Jesus Hates About the Church. Nor is it named Bad Church, Bad Church, What Are You Going to Do? What Are You Going to Do When Jesus Comes for You? But rather, we've been going through this series called Christ's Letter to His Bride. P.S. I love you. Now, I know that name is equally as cheesy as the jokes that I tell here on the pulpit. But it's named that because something we've been realizing throughout the letter is, letters is that Jesus never ends his letters with a threat. But he always ends the letters with love. And you may ask, why does he do this? Here's why. Because Jesus knows that though fear gets our attention, only love changes our heart's direction. Though fear gets our attention, only love um, changes our heart's direction. With that said, I want to, um, our gospel point this, in this passage this morning is this. One main point is this. In Christ, our weakness is strength. In Christ, our weakness is strength. I would like to explore with you three questions that I believe this passage answers and supports our main point. So the first question is this, what is strength? What is strength? Secondly, how do we get strength? How do we become strong? And thirdly, what is the goal of strength? What is it used for? What is it given for? So three things, what is strength? How do we get it? And what is the goal? First, what is strength? Jesus introduces himself to the church um, with three titles. He says, the words of the Holy One, the True, the True One, and the One with the Keys of David. Now, this, for the most part, means nothing to most of you if you never studied the book of Revelation. But to understand why he uses these specific titles, we need to know a little bit about the church of Philadelphia. See, the church of Philadelphia is described as having but little power. Or we could translate this as having little strength. 
And what, he's, and what Jesus is referring to is that the church of Philadelphia was a small and uninfluential church. I mean, this was a church probably that had a small building on, in the town. And you could walk past by it without even knowing that people met here for worship. The sign was worn off and it, had, and it was all uh, paint, it was all muddy and nobody could even read the letters of Philadelphia. The members of the church most likely did not make lots of money and they didn't boast career, big careers and big jobs and big titles. And, and this church probably did not have the cushiony chairs that you're all sitting in, but they probably had the ones that you fold, had to fold away after service and you could hear all the noise and the clanks and everybody had to do their part. The church probably did not have a celebrity pastor like Ephesus did, who could, uh, the church of Ephesus could boast that Apostle Paul was our senior pastor, or Apostle John, or Apostle Timothy, uh, Timothy was our pastor. But the church of Philadelphia had probably not a senior pastor, but a pastoral resident, you know. Their worship team was probably not very impressive. It was not Hillsong. They didn't have many instruments, or if, even if they did, uh, the person was probably not very good, and most of the time they sang a cappella, and they didn't have the projectors and the screens that we have here, but they probably had the transparency machines, and if the guy was slacking, nobody could sing. And This was a very, very small, insignificant church by worldly standards. And the Church of Philadelphia, on top of this, was also persecuted by the Jewish community at the time. See, in verse 9, Jesus mentions that um, the Jews and the synagogue of Satan, they were persecuting this church. Now, who are they? Who is the synagogue of Satan? See, the Roman Empire at the time, they had given exemption to the Jewish people from worshiping the emperor. So the Christians took advantage of this exemption, and they would often borrow synagogues to hold worship services in. As a result, the um, Roman officers would confuse and would equate just Jewish people with Christian people. There is no difference, so they're all the same. So they would get, Christians would get exempt from worshiping the emperor, and this worked for a while. This actually worked for a while until the Jewish people decided to separate themselves from Christians and began closing their synagogue doors uh, and reporting to authorities that Christians were not Jews. So that's why Jesus calls them Jews but lie. It's actually very interesting that he says something very similar in John chapter 8, verse 41, 42, that if God were their father, they would love Jesus and not persecute him. So when Jesus introduces himself as holy, true, and the one with the keys of David, he's essentially saying this to the church, that he is holy, that he is separate, that he's different. And his way of valuing things and considering things valuable and strong is different. It has a different value system, a different metric. And though it looks like the church of, has doors closed to them, Jesus says that they, the doors have been opened. And though they may feel weak and insignificant and hopeless, Jesus says they're actually strong and they're full of hope. Now, what does it mean that the doors have been opened and they cannot be shut? This is actually a reference to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 22, where God is promising that someone named Eliakim, someone named Eliakim will be given the keys to the kingdom of David that no one could enter into God's city unless Eliakim, the one who holds the key, he personally gave them admission and opened the door for them. Now, there's 
Some commentators and scholars who interpret what does this mean that he, they, uh, Jesus has the keys of David, they, they take this to be as evangelism, that Jesus has now opened the door wide open for the church to go and evangelize, and there's no, in the, there's no, no obstacles in their way, and nothing will get in their way. But that, although that is true, there's some validity to that argument, I personally believe this um, is talking about something else. Because think back to what the context, put yourself in the shoes of the church in Philadelphia. You are being persecuted not by the, just by the authorities, but you're being also persecuted by the religious leaders of, the, of that town who said that you don't belong here, that, there's a, that you're a mistake. And think as personally, if you were going through a lot of hardships and things were not working out the way you thought they would be, you start question, the first thing you start questioning is what? God's goodness and whether God loves you and whether God is with you to begin with, don't you? So if you put yourself in, that, in those shoes, Jesus comes to this church and says, the door is wide open. See, you may feel like you're not saved, like you are not good enough to have eternal life, to have access to our relationship with Jesus, but you actually do. Because Jesus is basically saying that he is the greater Eliakim. This, the keys to God's kingdom, eternal life, is with me. And I am the, ultimately the one who opens the door for you, weak. Nothing to boast about. Those who have little. And if you approach by faith, I'm accessible to you. It's like this. Imagine you were following Indiana Jones through the Temple of Doom or whatever. I'll probably get an email on that corrected uh, later in the week. But you're following Indiana Jones through the Temple of Doom, and the path is just riddled with traps. And before you go in, Indiana Jones says, stay here. Let me go first. And he goes through all the traps, and he sets all the traps perfectly. And then he says, come on over. The door is wide open. In your weakness, in your clumsiness, you're able to now approach. You're able to walk through because nobody will be able to shut the door or reset the traps again. I've set them all off. Now, this is very encouraging for the Church of Philadelphia because though by worldly standards they were poor and the powerful in society were denying them safety and maybe even questioning their salvation and faith, Jesus reminds them that you can only enter into everlasting life and a relationship with me not through strength, not by how strong you feel, but through weakness. Because in Christianity, it's not the strong that make it, but it's the ones who trust in the strong one who find life. See, today we define strength in many ways. We can define strength. The easy way would be that a strong person is someone who has lots of muscles and they can, they're fit and they sign up for lifting competitions and their bodies can lift enormous amount of weight. Or maybe when you think of a strong person, you may think of Arnold Schwarzenegger or The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, and you say that's strength. Or maybe closer, a celebrity closer to home would be Paul Reynolds who along with some other people, they went through the Spartan race and they post pictures on Instagram and you look and say, that's strength. And you look at yourself and you're like, I can never do that. And you feel like strength is sometimes personified in what or how our bodies look and what our bodies can do. 
Another way we look at strength is through our money. We make a certain amount, an amount in our salary, and you're able to, through money, you're able to knock down barriers, and it gives you access to very important people and luxuries in life and uh, the attention from people and what you wear and what you dress. Maybe you can afford a blazer and not have to wear a suit jacket the whole time to replace it. But money gives you access to, makes you feel powerful when perhaps when you sign up for a Netflix account, account, you don't have to watch one show. You can watch four shows at the same time. And and if you have one, then you feel weak, (laughs) right? Because you're wondering what's going on in the other shows. For others, your strength comes from your job. You've accomplished great things at work. And you have a title before your name, often in two or three letters, whether it be PhD or MD or LT or COL or SR, senior manager, and you feel weak when the only two letters before your name are MR, Mr. Mr. Kim, and it doesn't make you feel very strong. (laughs) For others, you feel strong when you own a big home. You have a big house near the water with a high square footage, and when you realize that you're able to provide for your family, that your family will not be in need today or tomorrow, and you're financially secure and on a track towards a good retirement plan, that makes you feel strong. And we could go on and on and on. But what all these things have in common is that the standard for strength is determined by how much you have and what you can do. And our world would say these are the metrics of how strong, how important a person is. But Jesus defines strength very differently. In verse 8, he defines it like this, I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my faith. See, Jesus defines strength with these two words, and yet. Because Jesus evaluates strength differently. See, Christianity turns the values of the world and on its head. Because while in the world, power is determined by how many things you own, Jesus says, and yet true power is determined by how generously you give away your possessions. It's the other way. While in the, pro- pa- while in the world, power is determined by how independent you are. And, and yet, Jesus says, true power is determined by how dependent you are on Christ. While power in the world is determined by how many people work for you, how many people you can delegate your work assignments and boss them around, Jesus says, and yet, true power is by how many people you love and serve. While power in the world is determined by how much you can accomplish, Jesus says, and yet, true power is determined by what Christ what I accomplish for you. See, church, there are a lot of things that make us feel strong, but we define strength like the world does. What is it that makes you feel strong, that makes you feel like you can lift up your head, held up high? Could it be money or accomplishments or your, how your, your body looks or your or position at work or how smart you are or a degree hanging on your wall? See, we could ask the question the other way. What is it that makes you feel weak? Do you look at your life and say, 
Because I don't have a certain salary or a certain accomplishment or a certain spouse or a vision of my, what my life should be, I feel like a bum. I feel weak. I need to work on these things. What, what could give me affirmation and security? Have you ever had moments where you've done or said something or maybe at home you've been ang- you, you lashed out in anger to your, to your spouse or to your kids and, you've, and you looked at your life and said, oh man, I'm a bad Christian, I'm a weak Christian. That definitely got the door shut. Jesus definitely shut the door on me and I have to work and I have to, and I have to fix myself before I can come to Christ because I was too much. But friends, see, Jesus has a different definition of strength. Jesus is holy and true. Fitting into all the metrics of the world don't make you strong before him. But rather, when we understand that he holds the keys of the kingdom of David, this means that we can earn everlasting life. Our strength is found in how dependent we are on Christ and how daily we acknowledge him to be strong and we are desperately in need of him. To put it in other words, In simple words, when we are weak, Jesus is strong. And when Jesus is strong, we are strong. True strength is defined by two words, and yet. We may not have great possessions in this life, and Jesus says, and yet, you are rich. We may not have the respect of the world, and yet, we have glory and honor in Christ. We may not live a perfect moral life. And yet, in Christ, we have a perfect righteousness made worthy to stand before God one day. So true strength is holding on to Jesus in our weakness. So the question now becomes, how do we become strong? How do we become strong? Which is our second point. In verse 9 to 10, Jesus tells us the method by which we become strong by which we get strength and power. He says this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. See, according to Jesus, the church of Philadelphia was strong. How? Because they endured patiently. They endure patiently. Now, you have to ask yourself, what does that mean that they endured patiently? It means that when they were persecuted, they didn't retaliate and fight back against their oppressors or against the the Roman Empire, but rather they took a stance of humility and weakness and meekness, and they waited for Jesus. They turned the other cheek. Instead of trying to change their circumstances and be on top, they sought to change their hearts. See, the church was okay with staying in a position of weakness. They were okay with feeling weak. There's this word in Hebrew that also also exists in the the English language which captures the attitude of the Christians at Philadelphia, This this idea that you're okay with staying weak. And the word is this, chutzpah. Now, if you know what chutzpah means, in the English word, it's often given a negative connotation, a negative meaning. But it's actually, in the Hebrew, it's actually a little bit different. Because chutzpah is the idea of winning by losing. Winning by losing. See, it's advancing God's kingdom through humility and overcoming opposition without seeking your opponent's demise. That's chutzpah. It's not trying to get out of your circumstance. 
is working in your weakness. Let me, uh, let me explain the, the concept of chutzpah with a story. A man told his wife that he was going to divorce her first thing in the morning. He said, honey, come tomorrow morning, dawn, I'm going to leave you. And you should actually go back to the house of your, return to your father's house, because we're, we're going to get a divorce. But out of pity, he made the promise that she should take one thing inside the house that she cherished the most from their, from their years of marriage. So later that night, the, the wife um, got ready this huge, amazing feast, one last dinner meal, and there was a lot of uh, alcohol and wine and a lot of food. And eventually, as the night went on, the husband drank too much, and he passed out. And when he passed out, the wife dragged his body and put him on a donkey. And after she put him on a donkey, they left to go to her father's house. So she took him. And in the morning, the husband woke up and exclaimed, what have you done? And she said to him, it was you. You are the one that I cherished the most inside the house. You are the very thing that I cherished the most in our marriage. It was you. It was always you. Now, this story tells the concept of chutzpah, where the tables turn, but not out of aggression or dirty play, but through faithfulness and ingenuity, and you win by remaining weak. See, the wife could have taken all his money and possessions. I mean, he was, he was sleeping at the time. She could, have, she could have destroyed his house. She could have lashed out in anger, but she wins by staying in a posture of lowliness through humility. So why am I talking about chutzpah? And why should Christians uh, concern, about, concern themselves about chutzpah? Here's why. Have you ever asked someone to pray for strength? Of course you have. It's one of the most common prayer requests there are out there if you're a Christian. If you can't find of anything people can pray for you at the end of community group at night, you say, please pray for strength in the Lord. Or that God will give me strength at work. Or that God will give me strength with my kids. And God will make, give me strength with my spouse because it's been, I've been feeling very weak. That's not a bad prayer, by the way. It's a good prayer. But here's the problem. What are you exactly praying for when you pray for strength? What are you exactly praying for when you ask God for strength? Are you literally praying for physical strength, that if God were to not give you strength tomorrow, you will be unable to leave your bed because the blanket's too heavy, and you say, oh, I wish I was like Paul Reynolds, and wow, like, are you, are you unable to, to get out of bed and go to your, and brush your tooth because the toothpaste is too heavy, and you say, oh, I can't hold this up, or when you say, pray, please pray for God to strengthen me at work, are you saying that if God were to not give you, zap you with strength, you would just fall down on your knees, unable to walk unless someone takes you to the hospital? That's silly. That's not what you mean. Then what does it mean to pray for strength? John Bloom, who is a Christian writer, he tries to answer this question because he found that a lot of people in his congregation came to him, and whenever he asked them, what can I pray for you about, they would say, please pray for strength in the Lord. And he got so impatient with it that he tried to answer, what do you mean? And he wrote this article trying to answer this question. And he says, he says this, that there's usually two, peop- two kinds of people. Or he says, um, two answers. What does it mean to pray for strength in the Lord? There's two answers. He usually says that when people pray for strength, usually, when people pray for, ask for prayers for strength, he says usually they're asking for the absence of feeling weak. 
He says usually people pray for the feeling of empowerment, and now you feel this, the Spirit of God rushing through your veins, and now you can be more patient than you ever thought you could, and you enjoy it. He says people usually pray for the absence of weakness. John Bloom says this. He says we, have, we usually pray for that because we have a wrong understanding of how we become strong. Instead, he mentions that how we become strong, how we ought to pray for strength, is by letting God weaken our confidence in ourselves. So it's kind of ironic that to be strong, God doesn't remove our feelings or positions of weakness and lowliness, but he actually increases it. You feel weaker and you feel more anxious maybe at times. And as he increases our weakness, He's faithful to also increase our capacity and dependency to trust Him. See, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10, understands how one is strengthened. And he says this, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, Paul is saying, for when I'm persecuted, when there's hardship in my life, when I feel anxiety, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, it's not the absence of feeling weakness. He says, I, when I am weak, I am strong. You know what he's saying? Paul understood that, you obtain strength, that the way you obtain strength in God is not by asking God to remove hardships or even give you a sense of confidence and power and remove feelings of weakness. But rather, those things are there because weakening agents in your life and mine and the church become strengthening tools in the hands of God. I mean, how often have you prayed for, to God for certainty in your life? Maybe you pray that prayer this morning asking God, what should I do with my life? That's not a bad prayer, by the way. But do you recognize that if you, were to, if you were to be sure of everything, then you don't need God for anything? So increasing uncertainty in your life, can I suggest that it may be God at work to strengthen you so you don't have to have perfect certainty on God's calling for your life, but certainty on the caller that He is good. See, we pray for God to help us feel more loving and remove our hearts of stone and impatience with our children or that person whom we can't stand. But do you also see that maybe you, you realize that you're more un, unloving and impatient, that feeling of weakness. I don't like to feel like a weak Christian. That may be the spirit at work in you to strengthen you, to make you rely, to see your weakness and rely on God even more. It's like this. When silversmiths want to refine and purify silver, they will introduce into the silver a weakening agent, fire. And the fire will make the silver bend and it will make it become soft. And, but as a result, the weakening is actually purifying the silver and as it becomes soft, it's making it more valuable. And, does this, and when does a silversmith know when it's time to take the fire off? It's when he can see his reflection from, um, from the silver. Church, John Bloom is right. And scripture is right when he says that how you become strong is by adopting a new understanding of what strength truly is. In other words, chutzpah, see, losing to win. 
seeing our weakness not as, a, as, a dra- as something that drags our spiritual weak- walk down, but seeing our weakness in our life as an opportunity where God is working us to make us tough and strong. Our uncertainties. Maybe for some of you, you've, you've heard, uh, you've gotten unexpected news from the doctor. And now you feel weak because you say to yourself, what can I do for God now with my body? It's, it's gone. It's weak. All those people out there, they're running and they're strong and they're doing mighty things for God. What can I do? See, Scripture says, when you rely on God, when you see that your body fails you, but your strength is found in how much you need God, that is strength. That is strength. And when we understand that our weakness is God's means by which he makes us strong, and when we don't feel the need to be confident people, perfect, without anxieties, without flaws, without insecurities, but people dependent on Jesus for all things. Jesus promises the church of Philadelphia and to us, Cornerstone, to you and to me, that when we're weak in our position of desperation for Christ, don't try to get out of that. Remain in that. Let me be strong. Exercise your dependency on me. And as we do that, see, as the fire is placed under us, the world will see that we are loved and our faith will be secure through trials in this life. In other words, our weaknesses, the more weaknesses we have in our life, will point us to Christ's sufficiency, will just show us how more sufficient he is. So church, don't be afraid to feel weak. Do not fall into the deception that if you don't feel strong and a strong faith, you are not a Christian. But Jesus promised to us this morning is that when you feel weak, See that I'm working and I'm present in your life. And you need me. You need me more more today. You need me today and you need me tomorrow. You'll never decrease in my need for you. In fact, it will actually increase. Practically speaking, let me give you just a practical point uh, for for our second point, which is it's common to pray for things we do wrong. We repent for things that we do wrong. Why? Because we feel like weak Christians, so we need to ask for God for forgiveness. And then when we feel like God has forgiven us, we feel strong now. We can go to church. But can I also encourage you that when you feel, when you've, when you've done something good, when, you, when you've served the church or you've done something good for the kingdom of God, surrender that too in weakness and say to God and ask Jesus to keep you from becoming proud. And becoming strong on your own terms of what you did. But become only strong in, in relying on how dependent you are on Christ. And saying, even if I did those good things, Jesus, I'm still in need of you. It doesn't decrease my need for you. Church, may we have a correct understanding of what our prayer for strength means. Lastly, what is the motivation behind being okay with weakness? What is the motivation to try to not be strong on our own or find things to to add to our image and and boost our self-confidence through material possessions or uh, people's approval? Which leads us to our last question. What is the goal of strength? What is the goal of becoming reliant on Christ, of not getting out of our position of weakness but in humility remain in chutzpah? The church in Philadelphia is actually one of two churches where Jesus doesn't, doesn't mention anything he has against them. 
This was a church that they knew they were weak. And they were actually okay with that. Why? Why were they okay? Here's why. We find the answer in verse 11. Jesus says this, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. See, what is the secret behind the church of Philadelphia that chose to remain weak? Because they knew the goal of what their weakness what, or what their goal of their weakness was, which is this. They knew that when they're weak, that, that translated into projecting Christ as strong. See, they were waiting for people to look at them as weak because that only will amplify how much stronger Christ is, who is coming soon. The church was okay with being weak because they had a greater promise of redemption and strength that was to come in Christ. It's like this. Um, there's a show called Undercover Boss. If you watch TV, you may have watched it here and there. But Undercover Boss is the show where it follows a CEO of a company, and they'll dress them up like regular people and put them to work in an entry-level job at uh, one of their franchises. So, for example, the CEO of Taco Bell will get all dressed up and made it, uh, he will be made look to like, uh, like a regular person, and he would work at a regular Taco Bell, and nobody would know that he's a CEO of Taco Bell. And as the CEOs are working in this, in this chain restaurant, eventually they will find two things, that they will find good workers, people who are nice, and they will eventually find managers who are just jerks, and they're rude, and they're, they don't consider people as people, and they treat them like they're not people. And eventually, the, manage, the CEOs would just bear the humiliation, and they would bear the, the uh, ridicule from these uh, jerk, mean managers. And as you're watching this show, there's a sense where you get excited because at the end of the show, um, it is revealed that uh, by these managers that they were being rude not to just a regular worker, but to actually the owner of the whole company. And as you're watching the show, you're like, yeah, like I, I can't wait to see your stupid face until, <laughs> right, when you find out that he is the CEO and not the manager. And you're waiting for justice and you're, and you're maybe like growing an anticipation for power, for true power to come forth. But you have to wait for that until the end of the show, unless you have um, TiVo or something that you can fast forward. But the point is, the point is that what appears to be weakness is actually strength. See, the CEOs bear with the humiliation. We have to watch them go through the humiliation because they know that a redemption day is coming. And at the end of the show, they would invite all these jerk managers to come to the headquarters of Taco Bell, and, and they think they earn something, and they think they're going to get a reward, and all of a sudden walks the CEO and just sits there and stares at them in the face, and they're just blown away. They don't know what to say. See, Jesus in verse 11, likewise, he begins a series of promises to the church of Philadelphia that the day of redemption, your weakness has a purpose, and the goal of your weakness is to show the world how weak they are. It's to show the world how strong Christ is. See, though they seem like they're weak and poor, Jesus says you actually have a crown. And with that, you have a kingdom. Though they seem hopeless, they are actually royalty. Though they seem powerless, a day is coming when they will rule with Christ. And that's a great promise for all of us as well. But I want to focus your attention on the promises found in verse 12 to 13, because this is a beautiful promise 
for the church. Jesus promises in verse 12 that the day will come when he will make believers into pillars of the temple of God and he will write his name on them. Now, what does this mean? This could be one of, the, one of those points where you read this and say, okay, that's nice, but I have no idea what this means, so let's move on to Revelation chapter 4. Let me explain briefly what they mean separately, and I'll explain what they mean as a whole. See, the pillars of the temple are symbolic of how God's glory will rest on God's people. It's like God's banner, this temple that holds what God's glory. And the pillars are actually a symbol of structural strength. So Jesus here is promising a day to, that, that is coming where you and I and the church, though we, in our weakness, though we seem weak, we will be strong and we will stand strong holding God's glory. But secondly, he promises that he will write three names on it. He says, the name of God, the name of the city, which is the new Jerusalem, and Christ's new name. And you have to ask yourself, why so many names? I think what's going on here is that Christ is writing a Trinitarian name. See, the name of his God is the Father. The name of the New Jerusalem is a reference to the city of God where the Spirit will dwell with his people. And that's in reference to the Holy Spirit. And this new name of Christ is a new name because it's in reference to Christ as his triumphant Lamb of God. See, the God-man that overcame death and resurrected and is seated on, on the right hand of God the Father. This is, this is Jesus not giving up his human nature, but now being perfect God and perfect man. This is a new victorious name. It's a Trinitarian name. Now, what happens when you put these things together? Here's what happens. Usually when you go to someone's house for dinner, and um, you'll often, often find a wall dedicated to their trophies and their medals and their accomplishments. And you look at that and you'll stare and you'll try to read their names and what they accomplished and all these things. Um, if you came to my house for dinner, you'll probably see my participation awards and how many participations I've been part of. And, and that's, not very, that's not very impressive. And we, we all want trophies. We want to be displayed when we've accomplished great things and there's no ounce of weakness and people can talk about us forever which is maybe why our parents never invited anyone for, over for dinner. In ancient times, it was, that was also the case. You see, because it was normal for, in ancient times for kings to invite uh, other officials, Roman officers or kings and rulers, and they would come in, and the first thing they would show them while they're waiting for dinner to be ready is the pillars. It was the Roman pillars. And these were not gigantic pillars, but they were about five feet or, or so, depending how big you wanted it. They were just standing, there were decorations around the house, and it was used for aesthetics, and people would come, and they would just stare at these, at these pillars like statues. But not only that, these pillars, it was common for these kings to engrave in these pillars their accomplishments and their conquests. And their, if they got married, they'll be like, today I got married and, and to this beautiful wife. And they would draw their wife as best as they could. And, and they would, if they had kids, they would say, I had a son or a daughter. And they would draw and they would in, inscribe in them their son or daughter's name. And they would write on these pillars to put full on display their majesty and their power. So when Jesus promises believers that you will be my pillars, 
that I will write my name on you, my Trinitarian name on you. What he's saying is that in your weakness, on earth you may have felt weak, like you were not a strong Christian, or maybe you got sick and ill, and it's been a long time since you felt strong. But remember that one day I will write my name. In fact, your name is already written in my hands. It's the Trinitarian God who the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, They broke the distance from heaven to earth so that they could make you and me and a weak church, people with weak faith, his pillar to put on display for all eternity. So church, what this means is that if you have a weakness in your life, that's not something to be ashamed of, but point people to Christ. Say, he will write, he, Jesus will write a better story with my sin and he will make it greater. See, church, we stand today as pillars of God's church, not because we're perfect, not because we're sinless, not because we haven't made mistakes, not because we're perfectly confident in all things, but we stand as pillars because Christ has made us into his trophies, where he writes his trinitary name. He engraves his name on us, and he claims us, and he's proud of what he's made so that when people look at us, may they see a weak people. May we not try to front and have it all together. But when they look at us, may they see our weakness. May they see our faith. May we remain in chutzpah and may they be able to remark, God is there. God is there. And that Christ is stronger than our sin than our death, and that he alone overcomes our world. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we know we are weak, but sometimes we, we try not to be weak. We try to feel like we're strong Christians by doing or by justifying our sins sometimes. But remind us that true strength comes from you, how dependent we are on you. Father, you give us strength not to feel strong and lift our, self, our self-esteem, but you give us strength so that we can glorify you. Lord, help us. Help us be needy of you. And Father, let this promise of that we are pillars where we display your conquests and we display your power, may that be the fuel and may that be the motivation to not be ashamed because we have a strong God. Father, help our hearts, weak hearts believe. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.